Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I met our next guest during the CSAC Scores Christoph Beck Workshop in 2019. She has composed music for some legendary video games, including League of Legends and Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands. As an orchestrator, arranger, and additional music writer, she has contributed her musical voice to projects including The House with a Clock in Its Walls, Need for Speed, The Transformers Movies, Angels and Demons, and Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. In 2019, she scored her first network television show, Pandora, on The CW, along with Joe Kramer. And the composer is Penka Kuneva. Penka, how are you doing today? It's a great honor to be your guest. Thank you for having me. I'm doing good. Great to hear. So, Penka, you were born in Bulgaria, correct? I was born in Bulgaria, Eastern Europe. I graduated with a music degree there and received fellowship as a composer to Duke University in 1990. Mm-hmm. And so you had been focused on composing, I guess, from a young age? That's absolutely true. My mother um, was a professor in music theory at the Bulgarian Academy, and uh, she took me to orchestral concerts since I remember myself. I, that uh, whole experience of going to concerts was a very um, defining experience of my childhood. So, yeah, I started piano around the age of six. And um, I bonded with music emotionally very early on. I just have these very distinct memories of these pieces of classical music just moving me to tears and making me imagine pictures and stories. So the other big part of my upbringing is storytelling. Um, Both my grandmothers on both sides and also my parents are fantastic storytellers. They could just tell you different stories and uh, most of the things that happened in their lives. So I kind of grew up with that very um, rich culture of telling stories. And um, I started working in theater in my teens. And um, basically when time came for me to decide what I wanted to do with my life, which was a very deliberate decision around age maybe 25 or 6, I decided to become a media composer, film composer, because I felt this vocation is going to combine the best, my uh, talent as a composer, my passion for storytelling, my passion for films, science fiction, fantasy, and, and I just chose to be a film composer. And just like so many other people just packed my bags and came to Los Angeles with no money and one connection. And um, wanted to start my career as a film composer. This was 21 years ago in 1999. Wow. In terms of the no money thing, like w- that must have been like terrifying in some way. Was there any job like, I mean, you said you had no connections, but was there any type of work that you'd like planned out to do here? So um, I um, understood that it was very naive of me to think I can come to Los Angeles and have no money. So I did borrow like about $6,000 from my friends in uh, North Carolina who knew me through Duke University. So that was like my starting capital, $6,000. I immediately started doing uh, music copyist jobs and orchestration jobs uh, for the TV composer, Amy winning TV composer, Patrick Williams. Um, He passed away last year. Mm. So um, that was kind of very small income. Uh, These were small jobs like 
TV movie of the week where he would bring in a clarinetist and violinist doing over doing sweetening. So it was a small income, but that that was kind of my first um, assignment, and uh, it taught me um, MIDI transcription, like MIDI creating scores for MIDI, and I sort of got into that orchestration path where I learned skills and I learned logic. And um, I worked with Digital Performer, but that was my first kind of a gig helping Patrick Williams with just the music notation, music parts and scores for his very small sweetening sessions for television films. Yeah. And how was that, um, or how did the, your previous like orchestration and like writing knowledge, like when you got here, how did that, or was there like any type of like mental shift of like, oh, this is like what the pros do or... I understand in hindsight, and I've been told many times that the reason I got these initial breaks when I was so naive about the business is precisely because I had orchestral chops. And that's, again, something that really goes back to my childhood. I started reading orchestral scores. I was so nerdy. I was like in fourth grade, I was playing, you know, piano transcriptions of symphonies by Mozart and Beethoven. And then by high school, I was like reading orchestral scores and going to the concert and really and then my defining experience in my freshman year at the Conservatory Musical Academy was going to Mahler, all of the symphonies by Mahler performed live by Sofia Philharmonie. And of course, I studied the scores. And then later at Duke, that was part of my dissertation, just like the orchestration of Mahler. So I understand uh, that in Hollywood, people understood that they are working with somebody who really knows the orchestra and also has uh, technical chops, like in Finale and DP and Logic and uh, MIDI, MIDI transcriptions. So I um, I can say with 100% um, assuredness that this was the reason why I was giving these breaks, precisely because of that one skill, which is difficult to master and not too many people have it. And I had it. So yes, this opened the doors, me being an orchestral composer and uh, understanding how to orchestrate, you know, how to write orchestral music. So I think that, that this is what opened the, the doors. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And was the tech side, you said that you started learning logic there. Had you used the computers for music before moving to LA? Really, the only thing I had used um, extensively was Finale, the notation program. Mm -hmm. Digital Performer, I mean, we sequenced some things. My programming chops were nowhere near um, like the kind of programming chops that people graduating from Berkeley have. So I had to do a lot of catching up, especially in um, in that realm, just really learning programming with samples. At the time, this is 1999, people were like stacking up these Roland's samplers. This is like 21 years ago. The technology <laughs> was completely different. Giga Studio came out in 2002. And I, no, Giga, Giga Studio came out like around 2001. I got my Giga Studio Giga computer in 2002. I understood streaming was going to be the future of audio. And that was the defining platform for me, for all these years. And I really actually still miss working in Giga um, environment because that's something I learned deeply and, um, ever since 2002. But now I have you know, this other computer, which is the host of my samples. But the whole point is that technically I always had to catch up. Always, that was one aspect of me as a composer that I had to put myself through kind of a self-designed um, workflow and, and people taught me and um, just by doing it, by a lot of you know practice and error and a lot of, practice assignments, which I gave to myself and forced myself to do. That's how I learned programming. 
So then um, I guess you'd been doing, was it mostly or orchestration gigs and like writing for libraries? And then you met uh, Steve Jablonski, composer of Transformers in 2004, just doing these types of gigs? Um, I, the, so my first gigs were with um, AFI. Uh, this is the American Film Institute graduates. I was scoring their short films. And uh, also that led to a feature film with an indie director. And then that feature film led to a relationship with um, another director who at the time was doing television films. So I um, started getting these monster movies with like titles like Ice Spiders or Chupacabra that were playing on the sci-fi channel as a composer. And um, as fate would have it, Steve Jablonski actually had heard one of my sci-fi movies. Really, you know, kind of really goofy genre films that they were all, um, you know, composed like in four weeks, basically have four weeks to deliver 75 minutes of action music, which was exceptionally difficult. That was one time I remember sitting on the chair for like 16, 17 hours a day, eating my meals on the keyboard, just basically just going to the bathroom for, I mean, really working 17 hours without a break. In hindsight, I regret it. At the time I was just learning. I didn't have a sense of, you know, workflow and maybe to hire helpers. I didn't have money because the budgets were exceptionally small. They still are. I mean, in TV, TV mm. movies, the budgets are not big. So Steve Jablonski knew about these movies. He actually had watched them. And also I was introduced by Patrick Williams, my first mentor, mm. to Bruce Fowler, who was the head orchestrator for the Hans Zimmer, you know, for Hans Zimmer's enterprise. And that's how the connection with Jablonski was made through an introduction to Bruce Fowler. And, um, and again, Jablonski gravitated to working with me because um, of my orchestral chops. Yeah, that must have been a, a surreal email, I guess. Well, at the time he was scoring a TV show, um, then he started scoring horror films. And, uh, and also some of his music was electronic. And it, it, took a, it took a while for me to sort of have a steady flow of, of assignments with him. So, yeah, it was, it was an incredible learning experience. I, I really love Steve Jablonski's music. His uh, thematic writing is very close to my heart. His emotions are very clean, always very clear. He like He's able to nail the emotion on the head and really focus and really hone in. So for me to work with a master like himself was an incredible just school of uh, composing. Although I was his orchestrator, I was just learning as a composer. And ever since, I mean, what I've learned from Jablonski, what I've learned from Neil Acri and um, Nathan Barr, these are the three composers who are my top clients. I use as a composer all the time. So that was like around 2004, four when he first hired me. You know, the, the job, the first job with Jablonski paid for my wedding, <laughs> which was, I, I um, got married in 2004 and I just, I'll never, I'll never forget um, the times were just so lean and so difficult. And I struggled financially and just in terms of finding jobs and finding my place. And uh, that first job by Jablonski paid for the wedding. Wow. Do you think that, like, <clears throat> after that, it, you just felt, like, financially safe no, no. or safer? No, there's mm -hmm. no such thing. There's no such thing as uh, financial safety um, in our business. We have to be very savvy. There's no, such thing, there's no such thing as you have one gig or one big hit or one client, and then they start showering, showering you with um, jobs. It, it doesn't work this way. I mean, you work when they need you, and uh, they, their needs vary sometimes. The politics of the gig are such that it has to be a union gig and you have to work on a union job. So somebody else works on that job. 
So, um, no, finding jobs is just this art of constantly promoting yourself and reaching out, making friendships, cultivating relationships, letting your friends know what you've done. Um, there's, in my experience, I mean, I had to continuously look for opportunities and continuously make new friends. In that sense, once you have a hit, that means nothing in the entertainment business. It means that you now you have to work harder to get more jobs or more friends because you had one break. And the other thing is recognizing the moment when you have a break and really giving it you all. Like when I met Jablonski, I understood that's a fantastic opportunity and I have to give it my all. I mean, I just worked so hard and um, really tried to be of service and try to be helpful and always protected his interests and always was kind of watching over how the score can be the best in terms of not just only the orchestrations, but also score production and, and um, workflow and maximizing the budget, you know, trying to minimize expenses for recording time by by being really thoughtful and making perfect scores. In other words, you have to be of service to your community first so people come back and give you more jobs. That was my perception back in like the early 2000s. Right. Well, I know you said earlier on that you felt like you were always catching up, but it seems like you always put yourself in fully into your projects and that that's why people come back to you. In our business, there's no half-assed way of doing things. I mean, you really commit because the competition is so fierce and uh, the jobs are difficult. These are challenging jobs. Every job, although there's a pattern, every job has its own individual needs and um, its own individual sort of aspects. And um, what has helped me is I've always been very intuitive, kind of very discerning and thoughtful and sort of really planning ahead, not just planning the timeline and milestones and, and the technical aspects, but just becoming very um, intuitive. Ultimately, what, how can I get the best possible work on, on this assignment? You know, how can I help my client in the best way? And I'm, I'm still the same way. I'm still the same, you know, on the studio jobs I've done for Nathan Barr or the gigantic uh, video games I've orchestrated for Neil Acri, you know, he orchestrated, he scores all of the um, Blizzard games, the biggest titles, Overwatch, World of Warcraft, and I'm his orchestrator. So my attitude has always been, how can I be of help to my, to my community? How can I elevate their artistry so they feel completely free? And the biggest compliment that Neil gave me is like, I, I know you're going to take care of it so well, I don't have to even think about it. So that level of service and that level of commitment and really Watching my clients back, I mean, kind of really trying to foresee any possible situation where we have to, you know, discuss and um, just being really thoughtful, really um, giving, really generous with my time, with my ideas about workflow. This is what producers do. So in a sense that I kind of did the whole score producing aspect besides crafting the scores, but I really enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed kind of doing the best and giving my all. Uh, and then... I guess in terms of your musical style, do you feel like working with a lot of these composers has influenced your your voice or that you've been able to keep like a strong sense of musical identity early on? I um, d developed musical identity in the course of time. And that's one thing that takes time. And mm -hmm. um, I've always been driven by a sense of having a very strong voice because I intuitively understood that that will set me apart um, from anybody else in Hollywood because I have a unique background. I, I come from Bulgaria. It used to be a communist country. It has a very rich culture of uh, folklore, classical music and storytelling and science fiction. 
So um, I kind of held on to my roots very strongly, and this is what opened the doors to me being accepted at the Sundance Lab in 2001, because my music was very unique. So um, I would say the voice evolved most powerfully in the last five years, actually in the last seven years, since I released that passion project, The Woman Astronaut, which essentially gave me my career. Every every single important, awesome job since has come because of that Woman Astronaut album. And I would say, again, the music of Jablonski, the music of Neil Akery have profoundly influenced my writing in a way that I'm a thematic composer. I write themes. I mean, of course, if I had to deliver texture music for a job, I can also do that. But my talent is in coming up with themes mm. and um, coming up with melodies. And uh, then, of course, the hybrid orchestra was a big thing. I, I think by now it's kind of more passe. Right now the music is more textural. That's right now sort mm. of in vogue. But um, I define myself as a thematic composer. So yes, for sure, uh, having worked for these composers has profoundly influenced me. I'm so grateful. I will never underestimate the impact of being the orchestrator for Neil Akery, Nathan Barr, and Steve Jablonski, and uh, how that has impacted my compositional skills and just my thinking of media music as an artist and just like has pushed me on a kind of path of growth because they are such consummate artists. So yes, I very much owe my um, success and my uh, individual individuality as a composer to having worked with amazing masters. Amazing. It seems like, like you've had some really great August masters come into your life and who've taught you so much. And then you're, you're quite a mentor yourself to a lot of up-and-coming composers who are now killing it in Hollywood, such as like Ben Bromfield or the amazing Amy Doherty. When did you start like mentoring people and like making that a um, a priority? I should have started earlier, but I started when my daughter was born in 2006 because it was very obvious that for me to survive as a professional in Hollywood with a child, I had to build a team. And uh, that happened organically. I mean, basically, I was working on a kind of mid-tier studio jobs with halfway decent budgets, but still not like lavish budgets. And um, I had one, um, at the time I had one seasoned orchestrator, so I had to build a team of orchestrators. Mm-hmm. And um, I started um, reaching out to the the deans of the big music schools like Berkeley or USC or Columbia College. And I told them, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking to build a team. Who can you recommend? specifically additional orchestrators, and uh, they had to pass, obviously they had to pass some kind of interview, you know, I had to make sure that they understand the workflow of taking a MIDI file and turning into a score, and they had to be, and I got really lucky because I got amazing assistance in the first year I did um, this kind of a cottage industry. And um, the mentoring was absolutely necessary because I, I worked at the time, and I still work at the very high, the highest studio level, and and the expectations are so high, but these people were fresh out of school and there's a gap. There's, I mean, let's just be honest. There is a real gap between what you learn in school and what the industry actually needs. And my job was to help them bridge that gap and learn all the skills, both musical and technical and in terms of knowing scores and understanding scores and understanding the workflow and so many things. I mean, it was literally a kind of a graduate school worth of teaching them. And um, at the time, really, my focus was raising my daughter and teaching my men- my mentees because they were my assistants. And we, I mean, we were getting five, six simultaneous projects at like at the same time. There was one 
very crazy summer, the summer of 2008. I'll never forget that. I mean, there was like um, 10 projects, studio feature, two studio video games, a whole uh, TV shows, indie features, indie games. They were all orchestral projects. And uh, my team was working like on eight big jobs at the same time. And at the same time, I also had two jobs on my own, composing jobs. But um, I had to train um, the people very conscientiously because my survival depended upon continuing to deliver the highest level of professionalism and quality. And this is something I'm really proud of. I mean, having mentored over 60, I counted last year, over 60 young composers and kind of giving them that first break and especially giving them the knowledge and attitudes and understanding, deep understanding of how the business works and what the business needs. It's probably one of the most important contributions I have given to the Hollywood business and the game business because it's always been across three industries. I mean, I've always worked in um, film, in video games, in television, and beyond. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure just the, uh, I don't know, the amazing range you've had over the years has been immensely helpful to these people who are just starting out. Uh, what, what do you think you've seen as the skills that people graduating from these types of music universities generally are lacking in? Or, or, or where do you see that they're strong, too? Um, so their strength, um, I mean, I seek out people who have a very deep musical education because the kind of work I do, I need that. Um, I also seek out people who have very uh, good um, skills in um, synth programming because I need to farm out assignments. Um, people who are very uh, intuitive about the needs of the job, people who are reliable, people who are giving, like really focused, really always going beyond the call of duty, obviously they're going to have fantastic careers. I have one of my favorite assistants, and I still work with him, and we still are business partners. His name is Alex Cote, and he came from Berkeley, and he was always just giving so, I mean, giving his skills and, and being imaginative and being adventurous with sound, because I gave him some sound assignments to create te sound textures, soundscapes, that I could include as a texture in my music. So um, that kind of adventurousness and commitment and uh, reliability and obviously other professionalism are the skills that will take people far, without a doubt. Uh, ben Bromfield was also wonderful. He was really hardworking, kind of really methodical, very helpful. And he had like the hardest job. I, I don't want to have that job. When he first got into town, he was working with Cliff, um, Cliff Eidelman on a feature film that was a studio feature. And um, the whole entire film got re-edited and chopped up like a salad. I mean, scenes were chopped up and um, sections were inserted and the music was swapped and the, the scenes were shuffled around. And his job was to take the entire score, which was at the time composed already, and essentially reconform and reformat all the musical edits to match the new film, which means you have to interpolate things, you have to shorten cues, you have to change time signatures. Um, and that's, I mean, this is a really tough job. It's just like kind of endless, tedious, um, and you have to be super focused on the detail. And he did it so masterfully. He was so helpful. And I had orchestrated about 80% of the music already. So there were at least a whole bunch, like a handful of cues that were completely chopped off. Think salad. They were just like, they had to be reorchestrated again, but some cues could be salvaged. And he was super specific, you know, delete these two bars here, insert three bars there and copy and paste this music. So he was like really helpful. And I understood this is a person who is fearless. 
This is a person who can handle any challenges that get thrown at him in his first year. And he's really technically savvy and he's really helpful. And he just is really committed on helping me because I'm part of that chain. You know, I get the MIDI files and I get audio and I craft the scores. So we started working together. This was like 2011. And um, I just gave him a couple of assignments, but he was also helping me as an assistant with like marketing. Like he would reach out to people and send emails, you know. And that was at the time I just had that big uh, break, which is the video game Prince of Persia, Forgotten Sands, which I co-composed with Steve Jablonski. And um, Ben really helped. He was, again, really intuitive and very helpful to send out emails to audio directors because I was introducing myself and he was helping me with, you know, sending hundreds of emails because I didn't have time because I'm always so busy working. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm thrilled. I'm so happy that he now has a TV show and just is wonderful. And um, at the time I understood this is somebody who will be very successful because he's super hardworking, very educated, really skilled, very musical, and just fearless. I mean, the way he tackled that film salad was just astounding and he was really helpful and I'm thrilled for him. I'm really happy. But these are the kind of attitudes I see that lead to success. They're attitudes. It's like, it's like worldview of just being really unafraid of challenges. And then I guess, uh, don't tell uh, people what you've got going on in terms of your own scoring gigs. Oh, can I? Oh, I have tons of things. I have like, I um, have a VR game that recently got released. It's called Spellpunk. And uh, it was a departure for me because the music is EDM with a little bit of orchestra. And uh, I have another VR game which is going to be released in the fall. And um, and I have two mobile games. One is, I only know the code names. They're going to change the titles. Um, I love scoring um, mobile games because musically they're very fun, very rewarding and just really fun assignments. It's like a nice musical theme that goes for two minutes and you have always one theme and a secondary theme. They're fun. Otherwise, um, I scored an indie feature called um, Our Neighbor's Shadow, which is really kind of a nice thriller. And I'm about to score another indie feature and always pitching for jobs. And um, this right now we're in, in the lockdown. So um, I'm always looking for opportunities. I'm always looking to make friendships and to see who's working on what so I can pitch myself as a composer. I also did have one question written in from a friend, a uh, recent grad from Berkeley, who was asking about how to break into video game scoring. Is it about reaching out to audio directors or if you could just talk about the process? Um, the whole, all these questions about breaking, uh, breaking into a business are complicated questions because what the people need to understand, first and foremost, their music has to be very strong. They have to have mm -hmm. a body of work whether it's indie games or their college friend doing a game, they have to have a body. You can't break into a business without um, some kind of something to step on. So, um, so that, you know, get your ducks in a row, compose music that is current. I mean, to stay alive, you have to always adapt to the needs of the market. Like for instance, right now, all these texture scores that are not melodic, not orchestral, not thematic. If you only write tunes, you won't be hired much because the, the, the directors and uh, the games need texture. They need something else, you know, grooves and textures and pads. So um, that's the beginning, you know, have your chops really ready and have a body of work. Making friendships is 
the only way to get jobs and to make friendships um, that takes a while because they have to get to know you, they have to get to trust you, then they have to kind of see you grow. See you grow through projects and of course you always let people know what you're working on. Um, Conventions, I mean, I've been going to GDC, to GamesoundCon every year since 2010 and uh, that's where most of my friendships have been cultivated but I also get jobs from... I mean, from the same people. In other words, I've met thousands upon thousands of people and then three people give me jobs and they kind of hire me all the time. I've not been able to get um, jobs from many different people, if that makes sense. I kind of have repeat clients and I definitely want to break out to work for more clients, but that hasn't happened much. I mean, I pretty much get my jobs from the same sort of clients. So what can I do? Maybe reach out to people again, tell them I worked on this new project or something. Constant reaching out, constant, you know, trying to be of service. And, uh, and you cannot be, you cannot be a jack of all trades. You have to really have your niche and you have to have your, your, um, you know, personality as a composer because in games, the score is so much about the sound and the style and the genre. So if you're like an orchestral composer, you'll never get hired for like a pure EDM score or, you know, kind of guitar based score. Because the perception would be that you can't do that fluently. You're going to have to sort of step out of your comfort zone, which happens all the time. So I would say the biggest um, objective that composers need, need to do is work on your music, work on your personality as a composer, and make friends. And make friends is going to take five years, ten years. You go to conventions, you check, check in with people, you get introduced. People have to know, know you. They have to be energized by your talent. They have to want to um, champion your talent. And once you get to the studio level, it's complicated because the studio politics, they're going to pick whoever they want to pick. They're going to pick the biggest composer they can buy for their money. And that's how it is. But I'm happy working in a mobile space. I'm happy working in a VR space. And it's all through friendships. Two things, simple things. Make sure your music is fantastic and you really have a voice as a composer. And make friends all the time. You can never have enough friends. If I have one regret, I wish I made more friends. Because all the jobs come from referrals and friendships and people who are excited about your talent. And that's just how it is. I mean, two simple things that take that took me 20 years. 20 years, that's a, a long time. A long time to be building a career. Great music, great relationships. Quality relationships with people who are in a position to make a recommendation or make a referral and that's how the career of any artist not just the composer that's how the careers grow through relationships and i'm very carefully trying to avoid the work the the term networking because i kind of dislike this word i think it's very perfunctory networking is kind of no you're making friends you're making friendships you are of service to them and their communities and in turn, they get excited about your talent and they get excited about hiring you. So it is the friendships that is absolutely um, paramount, but then you also have to have fantastic music. So great music and great friendships. Amazing. Well, with that, I think we're going to go on to the last section for the podcast. This is a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it and how you use it in your, your own life. So first is DAW. So I've worked with Digital Performer for 30 years and I switched to Logic for a while. In that sense, I'm a minority, but I don't care. So uh, the most important thing, like with anything else, these are your tools. 
and you have to learn them as deeply as you can. Any sequencer, um, and, and by now they're all professional and uh, programming with samples, it's not something you read in books. You're not something, it's not something you watch somebody else do it. You sit down and you do track after track, like pottery making. And of course, the beginning is going to be tough. And I squirm when I listen to my like music from 20 years ago, sequenced purely with samples. But um, the only way to learn it is by doing it. So um, Digital Performer, uh, as far as music libraries, I'm not, I'm like the total opposite of people who constantly buy new libraries. I don't do that because it's more important for me to learn the libraries I have. I have like Hollywood Strings and Hans Brass. It's more important for me to master my tools. And that's again my attitude. And I have Omnisphere and 8DO and things like this, you know, damage, whatever, whatever everybody else is using. I, I don't have anything unique and I don't really care at this point because I get the kind of jobs that I do with my set of tools, lots of synths also, uh, but no, no modular synths. I, I don't use, I, I, I don't have the technique. It's not part of my vocabulary. I just don't, never got into it. And uh, so the point I'm making is that whatever tools you have, you have to master them and become really fluent because I'm not the kind of person who writes three um, notes or three bars and then spends two hours looking for a plugin. No, never. My workflow is I do a piano sketch, even if the if, even if the music is going to be textural, I do a piano sketch of the entire thing. I start fleshing it out orchestrally, and in the meantime, I continuously polish and finesse and chop off things and delete things. I'm totally merciless towards my music. I'm not afraid to toss like a whole section if it sucks. And um, I get very easily distracted when I'm sequencing because the blank sequencer is just as scary today as it's always been. I mean, even though I've composed tons of music, still opening up a blank track, blank session is intimidating because um, I have to now, I have this blank canvas and I have to compose something. I always work with um, sketches, like paper sketches, and I usually sketch in a very short form um, themes, ideas, structural, emotional arc. So before I open the blank template, I have already a um, very precise idea, I mean, very um, solid idea what I'm going to do. So as far as tech, again, I probably fall in the cat category of like the total opposite of, uh, you know, gearheads and people who buy. It's just, I mean, I've always been financially, I've always been struggling financially and I never had, I could never buy libraries freely without being concerned, you know, where the money's going to come from. So I always bought, um, I also have Spitfire strings, which I, Spitfire strings, which I really love. And uh, winds are Vienna winds. I mean, I pretty much whatever everybody else is using, I'm using it also. And uh, I believe the strength of my music is just in the power of the music and the power of the emotion. And that, that has always been my focus. So um, I would probably say I, I fall in the category of people who are not like techie, you know, tech heads, but have a very deep and very fluent understanding of my digital performer and um, structure. And I also don't noodle on the keyboard. I just don't do that. It's just not my style. I sort of think about music in my head. And once I start sequencing, I know exactly what I'm going to do. That's just how I work. I'm, composers are very unique. And my recommendation is always that 
you have to go on a personal journey because it's a very personal, very individual journey. And you have to discover how you work, what makes you happy, what makes you fast and efficient. I also work in TV where we were supposed to deliver 20 um, per person, 40, 40 minutes of action music on the sci-fi show uh, in four days because it, it was in a weekly rotation, weekly production schedule. So four days, 40 minutes of music. How do you do that? You have to be very fast and fluent. So um, that's my tech, very sort of very flu fluid and not sophisticated. And um, yeah, I made it work for me. And my recommendation to composers is always find what works for you because it's going to be your tool and you'll be spending 12 hours a day and it has to work for you. Amazing. Well, Penka, thanks so much for being on. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.